Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. Welcome back. This is Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Great conversation with Tyrone Shaw about his um, book, The uh, Bastard Republic. We'll have Tyrone back. We didn't even get into uh, half of it. And uh, definitely a topic that is relevant today. He was a little ahead of his time in, in a lot of respects in writing this book. And um, there's a lot to be learned. I do like the whole notion of the fact that we had you know, at some point in some of our lives, Russians were demonized, yet uh, people are people and they are, you know, they're wonderful, they're warm, they're friendly, and they're, that's the way we want the world to be. So uh, Tyrone really, uh, in this book, talks about how welcome he was in, in a place where uh, he was out of his element in some respects, uh, out of his comfort. Uh, so my next um, guest is... Uh, Part of Destination Imagination, Jane Youngbear, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Good to be here. Um, Destination Imagination, can you just give us kind of a, a little background in, in it and in your involvement? Well, um, the program is a nonprofit for kids from kindergarten through college who work on challenges in in the arts and um, in um, and all kinds of different STEAM uh, fields, which is science, technical, engineering, arts, and math. And uh, so, uh, we're we it, the program happens at a local level, but it's part of something much bigger. It's um, international, so kids of all ages all over the world um, get to do creative challenges together. So it's all about being creative and collaborating as a team. And, um, yeah. And how did you get involved? Um, I got my start uh, when my own kids were little, so I became a volunteer um, and led uh, my kids' teams, my daughter first and then my son. And I just thought the program was so fabulous that um, I continued on as a volunteer. Uh, I'm a retired teacher, and I worked in Cabot School for a long, long time. And um, I started Destination Imagination there, and we had teams for about 15 years. Um, and uh, after that, after I retired from teaching, I continued serving on the board of directors for Vermont DI, and uh, now I'm, I am the director of the program here in Vermont. And it's all volunteer, right? Um, yes. It, uh, um, sometimes people are paid. Like, for example, if somebody works for an after-school program and they do DI as part of their job, that's fine. Yeah. But they're also um, – our leadership is all volunteer. Um, I am, as the director, I, I'm a volunteer. Our board of directors are all volunteers and uh, people who help at the tournament um, – including your own Greg Hooker, who we hear on yes. the air sometimes. He's volunteered, and his wife Sarah, too, so we're grateful to them. And uh, so, But um, the program can happen at schools, after-school programs, homeschool groups, community-based. So it's like anybody that can gather two to seven kids and an adult who can be their team manager and a place to meet, and you can have a team. And the adult who's the team manager, they're – 
the structure, right? But the kids really need to take this on. Yes, all the ideas, all the work, um, all the designing, all, all of the, the – everything that goes into it is from the kids, and the adults are facilitators. Um, the youngest kids can have some extra help. It's non-competitive. But once you get into um, – it's a very friendly competition, but once you get into elementary levels and up – um, adults have to be hands off. So we call it no interference. So, uh, the adults supervise and they help guide the team, help them to understand what the challenges are, um, and ask really good questions. But everything, all of the, the brainstorming and the, the ideas and the hands on work comes from the kids. I'm reminded of going to, uh, one of my first 4-H meetings with my daughter and, we were going outside and they were moving stuff and I started to pick up a bucket and the 4-H leader goes, no, 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 no. Put that down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the kids are doing this. That's right. Uh, yes. That's how we look at it too. And you want it to be, the, you want the kids to own it. And so let's get into the categories a little bit. It's, it's pretty diverse. Uh, oh, yes. And uh, so there are two main different kinds of challenges that the kids do. One is called an instant challenge, which are really short, quick-thinking activities and require a lot of, like, super teamwork to, to make something happen in a short uh, time frame. And so um, the instant challenges can be task-based, like building towers or bridges, and usually out of common materials. It might be like paper cups and plates and, you know, pipe cleaners and paper clips and things like that. Um, there are performance-based improvisations where perhaps um, kids might do a challenge where they have to pretend they're in an imaginary country of, that they invent and they have to make a map about it. Mm. And so a little skit. Um, and then sometimes there are combination challenges where they have to invent something but also incorporate it into a skit and a, a performance. So those are the instant challenges. And uh, besides those, and those only take like maybe 10 minutes or so, um, and kids do lots and lots of them. They're really fun. And then kids also choose uh, one category to concentrate on for several months. So they might choose a focus that's scientific or technical, engineering. We have fine arts, uh, improvisation, service learning, and early learning. So um, those are more complex, and they require more research, and um, they can learn skills. Adults can teach them skills, like if the kids want to know um, how to use a sewing machine, for example. Adults can teach them how to do that, and all, all kinds of tools or um, skills of other kinds. But the kids have to decide how they're going to apply that. Um, so they're, you know, if they want to make costumes, they have to figure out they can learn what the options are but then they decide how to do it um so um there are different um the different challenges like for example the the early learning challenge is a really fun one this year. It's called Making a Splash, and it's about uh, learning about underwater creatures, and they're going to create and present a play about underwater creatures who go on a vacation <laughs> to an underwater habitat. And so they get to build a model and scenery, and they can add other things to it also. And then sort of on a much more complex level, you might have um, – the engineering challenge called Going the Distance, where they're going to design and build a device that will be assembled and tested in two different ways. During their presentation, they're going to launch beanbags, 
But that has to be integrated into a story in which everything's going according to plan until a catalyst occurs. <laughs> so even the very technical challenges have a theatrical component, and the uh, more arts-oriented challenges have a technical component. Like in the fine arts challenge, they're going to create um, kinetic art that uses technical methods to create movement. Hmm. So... There's a lot, a lot to it, and uh, it's always fun. The challenges are different every year. Um, are the kids grouped um, because they're classroom friends, or are they sometimes strangers to each other? All different ways. Yeah. Um, and I think um, with my own kids, they started more with kids that they knew, but it can just be random kids like um, in, in a program that, that come together because of a common interest in wanting to try the activity. Um, for example, um, we have a program. Uh, I'm about to do a workshop next Sunday in Bradford. There's a makerspace there called the Space on Main. And uh, so they're opening it up not only to their STEAM club that's been in existence, but to the general public. So, you know, it's, it may be kids who don't know each other that come together. And so they'll do some STEAM build, some team building, STEAM and team yep, yep. building um, to, to get to know each other and learn how to be a, a team together. We're talking this morning with uh, Jane Youngbear, who is uh, the director of Destination Imagination in Vermont, a longtime volunteer. Her kids were in it. I do want to go to the phone lines right now. Uh, Jim from Barry, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things, um, or you guessed it, uh, that kind of caught my attention. Um, <clears throat> you had said that you mentioned um, the arts. Uh, initially, when you first started describing what your, your organization was, uh, and you, you started with the arts, and then later on went on to expand it into the rest of STEM, I had been exposed to—I believe it was your organization, but it was Destination Imagination um, <clears throat> when I was on the school board way back. This has been ten, fifteen years ago now, but I thought the original emphasis was on. Um, on, on the initial stem before arts was added to it, to try to catch up to the deficit with the Asian countries or China specifically in in the sciences. Um, and so, was was I mistaken about that, or has has it always included the arts, or has there been a change of focus of it? Um, <clears throat> that's one one question. The second question is, you mentioned the makerspace in Bradford. Are you familiar with the makerspace in Lindenville? Uh, <clears throat> it's called the Foundry, and uh, it, it really is very broad. It's a lot of engineering stuff, but a lot of art stuff. There's a glass, uh, stained glass window shop and so forth. And there's a mem very um, dedicated member from Cabot that goes over there, Paul Wade. Um, but anyway, are you familiar with that? And what would be involved in, in getting, it would have to be high school kids involved in the makerspace in Lindenville. All right. Thanks for the call, Jim. Um, I'm sure Jane. Thanks. Yes. Um, well, yes, I've heard of the Foundry, and we'd love to start teams there, so I think I'm going to have to get a hold of them and, <laughs> and see what we can do. Um, as far as the arts, um, my recollection is that um, there have all there has always been um, some type of arts challenge, um, and that. But it may be a long time ago. There was 
there were more people doing like the science and technical and engineering challenges. It's pretty evenly divided now. And um, as I did mention, there's opportunities for kids to try all of these things. And in the instant challenges, everyone is exposed to STEM as well as arts. So I think, you know, kids get to try a lot of different things and then kind of decide what they want to specialize in. There's another aspect to the program I forgot to mention, which is called team choice elements. And in those, teams can bring their own interests and skills and talents. So, for example, even if they're doing an arts-based challenge, they may uh, use robotics as one of their team choices because that's something that's interesting to them and they, they can learn more about that. Um, and similarly, you know, you may have a technical challenge, but a team may desi- decide to play their musical instruments as part of a team choice. So there's uh, many, many ways to uh, incorporate all aspects of, of STEM and the arts. So that's why we call it a STEAM program uh, with the A for Arts um, and also give kids an opportunity to learn more of about all of uh, those topics. So in the schools, uh, are you – do you go into the schools and talk to who? How, how do they find out about it from you and well, are, are you welcome in? Well, it depends. I mean, we find that uh, although there are many places that uh, incorporate Destination Imagination into their curriculum. It's definitely an option. It doesn't happen that much in Vermont and we're more likely to see an after-school program. Um, or community-based. I did mention uh, the space on Maine, and now I'm going to look into the foundry for sure. It sounds wonderful. Um, and also uh, there's a museum in Windsor, which is an engineering museum, the American Precision Museum, and they're sponsoring two teams. They have two – they're actually uh, three – a team, uh, teams mostly of homeschool families that are uh, doing destination imagination based at that museum. So that's pretty cool too. Um, so it depends. You know, we offer workshops, introductory workshops. We do um, training. So a lot of times we wait until there's some really serious interest. Sometimes it's just kind of we'll do events. We were at the Barry Heritage Festival. We've been to the Echo Center. So we're happy to go and um, – be part of an event, and we have a display and information handouts. And <clears throat> excuse me, we try and bring um, kids' activities there, so kids can actually try it and see what they think. And um, so we just try and get the word out every way we can. And are they start to finish at the location that they're they? They are having it, or is there some sort of Super Bowl event uh, that brings them? There's everybody? our tournament. <laughs> That's the culminating event okay. is our state tournament, uh, which is in March. Um, so that, which is why we want teams to uh, get going now if they haven't already, so they have enough time to work on uh, their challenge presentations um, in time to come to our state tournament, March 23rd, uh, hosted by Norwich University in oh. Northfield. And it's the first year we're going to be there. Mostly we've been based in Burlington, but we're trying uh, something new, and we'll be in at Norwich this year. Yeah, how fun. And yeah. I'm reading about uh, the – it's not only about um, creating these events and stuff. It, it looks to me like you're building um, character with, with our kids. Absolutely. And, and can you tell us more about that? Um, well, I think the experience of collaborating with other kids um, is something that – 
that, uh, you know, I know there's some schools that are pretty innovative and they, they do, um, give kids opportunities for that. But this almost takes it to a whole other level, um, where sometimes, uh, kids are discovering things they didn't know they could do. You know, some of the kids are just like, oh, I'm never going out on stage. And then they, they get, more uh, confidence and they find out that they they might and sometimes kids that are really outgoing and maybe dominate a group learn how to share the space a little bit more with other quieter kids and um, adult facilitators really do help in in making that happen but sometimes it's also a very organic process we're just by doing these activities together kids are constantly discovering things that they like, things about themselves, things about working with other kids. And so there's just wonderful opportunities for all kinds of growth and learning in that. Yeah, I'm seeing some of the uh, categories, respect, stewardship, perseverance, integrity. Yes. Things we really want, you know, all of us to espouse. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a great experience for the adults who get involved, too. It's very inspiring. That's one of the reasons I keep doing it. It's like I just see these amazing ideas that kids come up with uh, that are just so fantastic. And and you, sometimes there's, there's the things they do, it's like they're so well done, you think, oh, an adult must have helped them. But I know that that's not true. And the kids really come up with incredible inventions and ideas and performances and... Uh, it all in an, in an atmosphere of, of respect and, and collaboration. And we, um, we're in this cell phone world and, um, so, you know, social media and all of this is some of my guests over time. We've talked about attention span of kids and how it's lessened in that. Are you, are you seeing that or? Yes, I guess so. I mean, um, I certainly did when I was teaching and, uh, you know, I'm less directly involved with kids these days. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that it's, it's great to give kids other options and, and uh, they sometimes don't know this even exists until they try it and then they discover they really like building or making costumes or painting or, you know, it could be almost anything, um, and um, we do strive for diversity on teams, too. We want everyone to feel accepted, and uh, we can make accommodations for people that need them. We just we, – we really want to be inclusive, too. And do the adults who are supervising, do they step back and sort of let a conflict resolution process happen, or – um, it depends on the situation because, you know, so many, so many things can arise, but, yeah. um, I, I think they try and help the kids to solve, uh, conflicts themselves, but sometimes adult intervention is necessary. Um, and, you know, sometimes kids try the activities and don't enjoy them so much and discover, oh, it's not for them. And other kids, it's like they can't get enough. They just, can we do this every day? You know, there was a group last year that came to the tournament and they had so much fun. They said, can we come back next week? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's an annual event. So, yeah. no, but, um, yeah, it's uh, there's a wide range of experiences, but mostly people grow from it and perceive it as being a lot of fun. We talk on this show uh, with guests about sort of finding your soul. And this seems mm. like the incubator for opening up 
things that, like you said, that the kids didn't even know was, was sitting in them. Yes, yes. I love that about this program and about other, other things that do that is, uh, it's just, you kind of hand them these opportunities and sometimes they just take it and run and, uh, it turns out to be something they want to continue doing or it may lead to something else. There was, um, uh, at the global finals, uh, first place winners, um, and sometimes other teams also get to go to the international global finals in May. Um, and the guest there, one of the, uh, at globals was somebody who did DI as a kid and, uh, Daniel, oh, uh, Reinhardt. Oh, I'm getting his name wrong. But he he uh, won an Academy Award, and he talked about uh, what the experience meant to him and how it really helped him uh, to find himself and find some of his uh, his gifts. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah. We're talking with Jane Youngbear. Oh, uh, how do they find you or the program if people are listening now and they want to jump into this? Okay. I would love for people to email us at vtdicreativity at gmail.com or call 802-272-2766. And it's Destination Imagination uh, if you Google Destination Imagination Vermont, they'll find you. Yes. Um, we're on Facebook. Uh, you can go to DestinationImagination.org, which is the national site. There's great videos and, you know, uh, webinars and things on there. And also our Vermont website is CreativeImagination.org. So we're, we would love to have people join teams, be team managers, be tournament volunteers. Um, and we're looking for sponsors, too. We have some great sponsors. Yeah, quick mention of sponsors. Yeah, uh, real quick. Let's see. We have um, Darn Tough, and um, we have, um, oh, where's my list? National Life, Echo Center, Barry Rotary, Union Bank, North Country Credit Union, United Way, and the Vermont NEA. And we would invite more people to join us in all different ways. Great sponsors, great program. This is Destination Imagination. Our guest, Jane Youngbear. Uh, if you've got kids and you feel like they need something great to latch on to, uh, this is it. Jane, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to be back with Carl Rosenquist. Uh, talk about uh, Veterans Day, and uh, we'll be back right after this. Good morning, and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your Monday host, and I love being here with you on Monday. Hope you had a good weekend, and that wherever you are today, in your car, your living room, or out in the yard listening to us, uh, that your week goes well and that uh, we're we're very grateful to be part of it. Um, I have mentioned that I'm a sheep farmer with my daughter as one of my hats. And uh, this weekend, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have our calendar girl this morning, but I just wanted to mention that uh, there is a grand opening of a Vermont mill, which is going to deal with wool uh, at the Dodge Farm in uh, Barrie uh, from – three to seven on Saturday. So if you have any interest in seeing how uh, wool is processed, they've got this brand new machine, that which, which is just amazing. 
That's going to be at the Dodge Farm in Barrie on Saturday from 3 to 7. Uh, we're going to go and bring uh, not three bags full. We're going to bring about 10 bags of wool and see if they'll turn it into yarn for us. So look forward to that. I'm very excited about my next guest. Uh, uh, like my first guest, uh, a person of many hats, Carl Rosenquist. I want to welcome you to the show, Carl. We may have lost him for a moment, but uh, my producer is uh, uh, looking around for him. He's coming in on the phone. Um, so Carl Rosenquist, we'll have him here in a moment. Um, we want to be, talk a little bit about Veterans Day. And Veterans Day was uh, started in uh, right after the end of World War One. And of course it was celebrated on Saturday here and nationally. Uh, it's always November 11th, so it doesn't skip to a Monday. Uh, it, it's the day that it is. And it, uh, interestingly enough was, uh, part of, uh, World War One being the war to end all wars, which would have been a great, uh, concept. Uh, we know that that, uh, isn't true, that we, Seem to be a, a world that um, does engage in wars. And uh, so we'll get to talk a little bit with Carl. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet um, and also just about service. Uh, he is somebody who has been part of the uh, Georgia uh, Select Board. He has been uh, – he was a representative representing Georgia in the legislature for a number of years and uh, has been a business person. Uh, his military started in Vietnam, but then he was U.S. Army Reserve, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, I think I've got Carl Rosenquist on the line. Are you there, Carl? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Great to have you. Thanks for being on the show. Um, I did set it up a little bit. Veterans Day is every November 11th. They don't um, change the the day to accommodate um, commercialism or anything else. It, it's a, a respected day to to honor veterans. And you have a lot of hats of service, um, both locally in Georgia. You were a state rep. You've been on the Georgia Select Board or, or still are and, and a lot of other things. But uh, – you also have a military background, starting with Vietnam. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, I was in in July 1966. I I ended up being drafted. In fact, I was drafted out of college, and of course, objected to that at the time. Uh, but the draft board said I had had five years, uh, or I'd been out of high school more than. Four years, so they wanted me then. So anyway, backed up and went to boot camp and then advanced infantry training and then uh, officers to training school. So became a, a lieutenant in the Corps of Engineers and taught demolitions, landmine warfare at Fort Belvoir for a bit. And then I was on a a list to go to Vietnam, so I I had just gotten engaged, <laughs> so and then we got married just before I went to 
Vietnam. Um, it, and our first child was actually born when I was over there. So, wow. Uh, anyway, uh, served as a platoon leader for seven months, then as the assistant S3 for four months, and then as the actual S3 or operations officer of the battalion for, for a month before I derose to the U.S. And then I served another 20, what, 20, 25 years in the Army Reserve. And getting were, out as a colonel. Were you a Vermonter at that point when you headed to Vietnam? or, or? No, actually I was in a small town outside Philadelphia, and uh, that's where I was drafted from. And as I say, I, I signed up for OCS uh, and uh, found the, the training both. Uh, I was in pretty good physical shape back then, so the basic training and all the physical stuff wasn't wasn't a big issue for me. Well, I've seen your racquetball skills, so you, you maintained a pretty good shape over the years, so that's good. <laughs> up until fairly recently, right? Now they, <laughs> they shut down the racquetball courts up there in St. Albans. So. Uh, anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, uh, as far as the military was concerned. Two of my uncles had actually fought in the First World War, and I had an uncle, not an uncle, but a cousin who served in the Second World War. And my older brother was drafted to go to Korea, but did, didn't go because of health reasons. So, you know, I had that sort of background that uh, I figured if that when your time came to serve, uh, and in this case it was still the draft in effect to that that I would go. Yeah. And were there, were there role models um, early on uh, for you about service? Um, obviously, you've done so much in your life to to help others, and I know that the draft was a draft, but you, you obviously complied. But were there people that sort of instilled uh, service in you? Yeah. So, no, I think that's, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm, my... My father's family had immigrated to the United States from Sweden, so and my uncles were actually born in Canada, uh, but then joined the service, one a Marine and the other in the Army during the First World War. And uh, so I, you know, I felt somewhat connected to the military from that, or, you know, wanting to serve when, when the time came, so. Yeah. And when you're in Pennsylvania, you've been to college, and what were you on a boat to Vietnam? How, how did you get to Vietnam? No, basically an aircraft to Cameron Bay, uh, and then from Cameron Bay by uh, a smaller aircraft up to Pleiku in the Central Highlands, and that's where I served my tour there. Yeah. And we don't know what we don't know, but if certainly when you come from rural Pennsylvania into Vietnam, what what was the culture shock for you, or was there a culture shock? Oh yeah, and there was. You know, it was so all of a sudden you're in a combat zone where you know most of people around you are all in uniform and carrying firearms, et cetera. So it was uh, uh, somewhat of a, a shock from having been. Uh, civilian just a few months before and actually in college. In fact, I was studying to 
I was in a pre-med course at Temple University, and I obviously tried to persuade the draft board I'd be more valuable if they let me finish medical school, but they said they, they needed me now. It was at, at the big, during the, the war, uh, we had like 500,000 troops in, uh, in Vietnam when I was there. Yeah, in 66, and it really didn't start de-escalating for several more years, right, into the early 70s, so. Correct. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, they. Go ahead. They changed some of the methodologies, but I'm sorry, Brad, go ahead. No, no. Um, it's just, uh, now we, Vietnam really, uh, I had uh, a guest on who was in Iraq, um, served in Iraq, uh, two, two tours and during that program we had a uh, Vietnam vet from uh, New York call in and he was very grateful we were having the discussion and and one of the topics Carl was that Vietnam veterans um, came back to the US but there was definitely a culture shock coming home not not really open arm welcome uh, did, did you find that or feel that was that true for you yeah i definitely did i mean when when we came back i de-roast or what they call came back through fort lewis washington and you know back in those days you processed out in less than 24 hours <laughs> we were on a freedom bird to wherever you lived in the united states so i they sort of suggested they didn't tell you had to travel and civilian clothes, but they recommended you do it because of the protests uh, at airports and all about the war. So uh, I, my recollection is I wore my uniform, but, you know, I'm trying to think back to that. Yeah. My, my wife felt it, uh, you know, as they say, I got married just before I, I went to Vietnam. And she, she uh, seemed to feel worse than I did in terms of the way veterans were uh, treated. So anyway, I uh, just wanted to say that she she felt it uh, in addition to myself. So oh, it was yeah. it was too bad. It's totally different now. People are very respectful of veterans and our service, and uh, so it was a change in culture. <laughs> that was for sure. So well, and um, gloriously, you came back to a, a a new wife and and a child, which. Is, can be pretty glorious and and uh, help other woes, I guess. Absolutely, no, it was quite quite something. And I went back worked for a building contractor I'd worked for before, and then in the fall I went because I got back in May of '69. It was, and then I started working for the. Uh, I went back to Temple University to finish up my degree because I hadn't had the the service had interrupted. So I got my degree in uh, one semester and so and then started my career with uh, in production management uh, with Kraft Foods in in central New York State and then ultimately here in Vermont. So uh, that was sort of it but simultaneously I did stay in the Army Reserve uh, for 25 more years and uh, that was Quite an experience too. I had uh, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of lot of work, uh, but we we had some good times uh, training tr- 
troops out at Fort Leonard, Missouri in, in the summer when that was our summer camp. Uh, so. And um, in Vietnam, you were in a squadron, army squadron of sorts, and um, met a lot of uh, fellow soldiers. Did you maintain relationships at all with, with people you served with? Yeah, ironically enough, when I come in flying up from Cameron Bay, I got off the small little caribou that I was flying on on the tarmac at Pleiku Airport Airfield, and a helicopter landed just next to us, and this guy sort of rolled out of the helicopter, and it was a guy I'd gone to high school with. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Would you believe that? He was coming back from an aid station. He'd gotten a piece of shrapnel known as rump. And uh, anyway, he was. We maintained, you know, keeping in touch while we were there because we were in the same division. And uh, and then he lives out in the West Coast. I haven't seen him in years, but we talk every every so often. So, so that was something else. And uh, other than that, I haven't really kept touch with most of. I uh, even though people I went through OCS with, I've kept in touch with, uh, and. And most of them all went to Vietnam as well. So, And I mentioned this on a past show when I was at the Maple Festival Parade one year, um, probably within the last 10 years. And uh, the, the crowd was kind of quiet in general. People were coming by. The politicians were coming by and different floats and, and all of that, the, the fire trucks and all of that. And at one particular point – um, probably about six or seven Vietnam vets were with a banner signifying that they were, um, came through and the crowd stirred Carl and they, there was a, a really, um, heart whelming, um, or heartwarming ovation for, for these veterans, almost, you know, literally bringing tears to your eyes because it was, it just seemed like something so long overdue, and I, I was just, I was so amazed and, and happy to be part of that moment. And yeah, well, I guess so. That that, that would have been nice. As, as I say, I've, I've been treated with tremendous respect uh, ever ever since. I mean, it was just that period of time when we just got back from Vietnam, and a few years after, and that that was. A, a little rough, but you know, we got through it. So anyway, the uh, so the it's, yeah, it was so, a float bridge platoon leader. So we put in float bridges across some of the rivers uh, t- towards the tri-border area, you know, Cambodia, Laos, and all the all the movies have us blowing up bridges, but you were putting them in. So <laughs> yeah, we. Put them in and take them out during the monsoon because <laughs> the rivers are getting too too high. So anyway, uh, it was it was interesting work and uh, the uh, as a platoon leader and I I would take out uh, observation patrols from time to time because the secondary mission of an engineer officer is to serve as infantry. <laughs> so but uh, so we take out observation patrols looking to see if we could see some rocket launching sites that would come to uh, our airfield in particular. Mm, boy, it's uh, an experience that a lot of us don't get and, and probably one that um, 
is, you know, it's just, it's not an easy thing. And I'm wondering about the, and we only have about two minutes, but very briefly the, to be in the military in, in a conflict in Vietnam, um, was it, was military order, um, pretty, uh, strength, had strength or, or were amongst soldiers were you going, why are we even here? Was there that? And we don't have much time, but briefly. Yeah. I'd say, uh, order was pretty good in the outfit I was in, but not, you know, there were, Areas where things got pretty ragged, and uh, you had fragging incidents where people would frag their superior officer because they didn't like being there. For one thing, they'd uh, uh, you know hand grenade or something like that. You know, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I didn't run into that necessarily, but uh, even though, ironically enough, a grenade was the, the thing that almost took me out. <laughs> wow. So we're talking with Carl Rosenquist. He was a, a Vietnam vet, and Veterans Day was Saturday. Carl, I want to thank you for um, your service, and, and so do our listeners uh, for for everything you did uh, to serve. So thank you. Hey, thank you very much, Brad. Take care. You too. I appreciate you being on the show. This is Brad Furlan. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks for joining uh, your Monday with us for a couple hours. We appreciate it. We can't do radio without you, the listener. Uh, This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, and I'll see you next Monday.